It's exciting the way that it starts here in chapter 6. It starts in a way that seems really positive. In a way that the world even loves. It begins by saying, now in those days, the disciples were increasing in number. The church was growing. It was growing rapidly. It was growing exponentially. It was just increasing, which everybody generally likes that. And you would think that if that's happening, then everything's being done right. Not so, not for sure. Secondly, what we're going to, what I want us to think as we're looking at this period of time where the disciples are increasing is that this is in the days of the apostolic church. There could be, even in the minds of any of us, with regard to the history of the unfolding church, no more church that was apostolic than the church in Jerusalem. This church had 12 apostles present in its founding. The totality of them were in this place serving and ministering. So I'm sure that as it unfolds, this will prove to be the flawless, perfect church. Right? Say, well, it doesn't. We don't even get through verse 1 before we see that problems arose. So we're going to be looking at really uh, two main things under, unfolded under six sections. The practical difficulties they were facing and the devoted priorities that emerged from them. We're going to see those things unfold. But first thing I want to see this. Disciples were increasing. The first point is the disciples are increasing. And I want to just pause as we deal with that for a moment. It does not say church members were increasing. It does not here choose to say the church was increasing in number. It does not here say Christians. Later the term Christian will come as it's spoken negatively, supposedly, at least in the minds of those saying it, but probably received with great joy in Antioch. But here it says the disciples, and I think that is good and that is healthy and that is important. Oh, that we would understand that, that true church growth involves people being disciples. Not just hangers-on, not just attenders. It, it, it's not that the, the church was growing in such a way that now there was a congregation. It's not that now there was a more numerous audience. Which sometimes it seems like churches be, begin to become that, don't they? You, you've got the audience, and, and that term really doesn't sound too Christian to us, does it? You know, the audience. And, and so we Christianize it a little more by saying the congregation, but it, but it still turns it into, uh, you know, a, a group of people who are, who are simply there participating. But, or not participating, but just observing, hearing, but not necessarily engaging. The concept of disciples, now we don't use this term as often as maybe we should, and I understand why we don't. You're going to find it interesting. This term disciple appears in the Gospels and the book of Acts, not after that. Does not appear in any of the epistles. 
And so it's, it's striking in that sense, but it's foundational throughout the book of Acts. And what is a disciple? Now, if you ask that question, generally speaking, if you're in a certain Sunday school group, you'll say, oh, the disciples were the apostles, the 12 disciples, right? Well, were there more than 12 disciples? Yes, Jesus came down, we remember, from that mountain in prayer, and from among the disciples who were there following him, he called out from among them, marked out 12 of the disciples who would be apostles. Now, as those marked out to be apostles, they remain disciples as well. But there are many other disciples, not many other apostles. Now, I like this term, and we, and we, we, we blend it also into modern methodology, and we talk about discipleship, right? And then, and then individuals get, uh, get pretty uh, caught up and, and talk about discipling one another. You know, I'm going you know, I, to come alongside and disciple this young man. You've heard that kind of terminology. Now, realistically, the one who's discipling that young man needs to keep clear, I am a disciple. We are all students, learners, followers of Christ. And so that's why we've got to be cautious if we use the modern language of discipling someone that we're not making them followers of us. And they should not be learning something just because it's what we say or what we teach. But we want to be continually directing them to Christ. That he would be exalted, that he would have preeminence, that they're disciples. I loved even this morning as we're looking in 1 Corinthians, uh, as that's unfolding in verse 10 and following, where he appeals to them because of Christ. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. Here he is an apostle, and we know he's going to say later in chapter 14, anyone who thinks he's spiritual has to acknowledge that what I write to you is a command of Christ. What I write is, what I write is one with authority. But the authority they wielded was not one that sought to lord it over them. And Jesus warned about that, right? Those who will be leaders, those in my kingdom, are not those who lord it over as the Gentiles do. But he who wants to be greatest in the kingdom is he who will serve others. And so in this context, we've got to understand this. A disciple defined is one who is intentionally learning. Now, learning is something that sometimes is tossed aside in churches. Learning are not mutually exclusive. Learning is a blessed part of worship. As our heart is enlarged and our mind is informed. These things work together. The idea of being a learner is absolutely crucial. And by this missing... What can tend to happen in many modern churches is someone can seemingly be saved. And then you can and and they'll say, uh, well, you know, I'm not ready to do much in the church. I don't think I could teach a Sunday school. I don't think I'm not comfortable sharing my testimony or the gospel because I'm still trying to understand all of the pieces of it. Someone says that early on, you can have a little patience and mercy with them. But five years. 10 years and what begins to happen is people can tend to sit in pews for decades 
centuries, well, not centuries, but seeming centuries, and, 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 their, and their knowledge level and maturity level, spiritually, and doctrinal understanding level, it maxed out in the second week. And, and, and it locked there. That cannot happen. When we come together, there, there ought to be this desire to learn. I want to know what that passage says. I want to know what those words mean. I want to know what they experience. I want to know how that applies to my own life. How I can live these things out. I want to learn that I might follow Christ. The idea of disciples speaks of really two primary thoughts. Now, traditionally, if you look it up in a lexicon, you're going to see the word pupil too. But since we don't use that word very commonly, I'm going to stick with learner or student and follower. All right. These two thoughts are primary to disciple. Just gaining information. Does that make one a disciple? No. You gain the information and then you walk according to the things that you've learned. It, it is a constant process of learning and walking and learning and walking. That's ex a, that we're speaking of figuratively for us, where it was literally for them. Jesus taught as he walked from place to place, and they heard the lessons, heard the instructions. They physically followed him where he went, and then practically followed his instructions. Think about what the state of the Christian church or churches would be if every believer rightly deemed themselves a disciple of Christ. I mean, the commitment, I'm coming to engage and hear and receive something from God's word. I'm here that I may make progress. I don't, want, I don't want just years and years and years to pass by and, and have this complacent, passive sense. Well, I'm saved. I'm good. No. He is majestic. He is glorious. I want to draw near to him. I want to be more like him. I want to seek the face of God. I want to pursue after Christ. I want to fix my eyes on the one who's seated at the right hand of God. It, it's not a passive activity. A discipleship, being a disciple is an active and intentional thing. And brothers and sisters, I'm urging it on you. And I'm urging you to share that with your other brothers and sisters in Christ that they might hear and think and understand that because that's something that is vitally missing. It's not tick off a little box, went to church on Sunday, did it. No. I often ask myself, did I learn something today? What I heard today. How does that affect me? Did I learn something more about Christ? And maybe many times, depending on where we're at, we may not learn something necessarily new. But by the grace of God, say, was I reminded of something afresh today? Something that kind of uh, faded from the foreground into the background of my mind. That it, it's been brought again with a little bit of freshness. And yes, praise God for that. 
that we worship in glory in God. Oh, to be disciples. Also, it's in, I want you to know this. With regard to those who are disciples, as the disciples were increasing, the disciples were distinguished. What distinguished the rest of the Jewish community, all of them which considered themselves devout in some way? What distinguished these ones were that they were learners and followers of Christ, and they were known. It says to us, um, really in verse 2, and the twelve summoned, in the ESV it says, the full number of the disciples, or the congregation, or the multitude of the disciples. It's a known group. Uh, I love the way that it's stated in the ESV, the full number. They know who the members are of the church. They know those who have committed themselves to the group. It's not just a, it's not just a, a random group of people. They understand these are the ones that God has entrusted to us to oversee their souls. These are the ones who have committed themselves to submit to the leader of the, sh the church, leaders of the church, as well as commit themselves to mutual love and service among one another it is a distinguished disciple community recognized which again we live in a day and age where where, where membership and importance of that just kind of begins to tank and and quasi uh, uh hanging on and apart it's good to be known named and numbered it's good to to be engaged and committed and these the these group were distinguished. And within that distinguishing, somebody who, who claims to have been a part of that group and then is no longer walking that, but walking another way, then what are they able to do? Wait a second. This person has professed to be a disciple, a learner and follower of Christ, but they're walking this way like the world. And not this way as we have learned of Christ, if we have learned of Christ aright. And so then what do we do with that disciple? We go to that, one, that professed disciple and say, brother, sister, you can't walk that way. You don't want to walk that way because this is the way the master would have us. This is the way the teacher would have us. Remember what he teaches us? Remember what he calls from us? And if they're a true disciple, what will they say? Oh, you're right. You're right, I can't walk that way anymore. And so you, you, because it is a, a disciple, a distinguished disciple community, there can be good and true biblical discipline. I know that's a scary notion to some people in the world today. Church discipline? That's, that does not sound loving. Well, there is very little that is more loving than church discipline, than to go after a brother or sister who is wandering and wandering from the faith, who maybe the enemy has caught in his snare and seek to come alongside of them and, and help them pry that open. They can get, there's very little more loving than that. But the world doesn't see that today, does it? They begin to say otherwise and think, no, the loving thing is just to, just to tell them no matter what they're doing, don't tell them what they're doing is wrong. Just tell them you love them. Now, I want, you to, want us to also note this. Disciples are to be developed. We remember as we look at the Great Commission. What does the Great Commission say in Matthew 28, verse 19? Go, therefore, into all the world and make what? Disciples. Again, it's not, you're not making Christians. You're not making supposed converts. You're not making 
people who will profess. Everyone should understand from day one, I am a babe in Christ and I need to grow. I need to learn. I need to progress. I mean, again, everyone's going to progress at different levels and everyone's going to reach different stages. We know that. Not everyone among us necessarily, after completing the, uh, uh, high school, is going to go on to college. Not everyone who completes college is going to go on to grad school. And so on and so forth. But I'm pretty sure most of us moved on from kindergarten. And then most of us moved on to middle school. And then a few of us moved on to high school as well. Right? And, and we make some degree of progress, but what can tragically happen by the loss of discipleship, you can look around and you've got kindergarten Christians all over the place. You know? And then the problem is, and you, you end up, churches begin sticking kindergarten Christians in, into key positions and leadership, and then what begins to happen? I mean, can you imagine if right now we shut down the government today? And tomorrow, we replaced every single one of them with kindergartners. What would the condition be like the next day? Exactly the same, someone's saying. <laughs> Better. <laughs> but realistically, it, would you really want to do that? You know, because they, they don't have basic understanding that would be important. So pretty soon, the, the, the debt of the government would be out of control as they did nothing but spend it all on nutter butters or something you know can't happen so there has to be it says go into the go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit and then it goes on to say what teaching them to observe all things that i've commanded so there is a starting point which is not knowing much but the basics of the gospel and then there is a progress of moving to trying moving towards the progress of knowing what all that he's commanded now i'm going to say this and i'm saying it as lovingly as possible all right with regard to your practical earthly education if you want to hang it up after high school you're allowed to do that if you want to hang it up education after college you can do that you can stop your formal education at any particular point you choose when it is enough for whatever career or calling you're going to be engaged in but listen we have been called out of this world into conformity with christ and i'll tell you what you can call it a day when you are perfectly like Christ. Is that going to happen in this life? So, and so, so we don't get, and, and I think that maybe because of the way that the world works, we kind of think, I, I'm satisfied with my level. No, I need to know more of Christ that I might be more like Christ. I need to know more of the word that I might walk more in his will. I need more. You know, sometimes with regard to the practical schools, some of us can tend to say, oh, I just can't wait till I'm done with it. 
I hate school, but I've got to do it because it's required and I've got to finish this to get to where I'm trying to go. There is a dread in that kind of, not for the disciple of Christ. There is a delight in the disciples of Christ because there's a difference. Sometimes we all know this and, 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 and it happens often. I, I could talk with my son. And there will be certain classes where, where he finds it interesting. The things all seem to have relevance and application and meaning. And another class is like, oh, useless junk. You know, and, you know, and, and, and he has to take both of those. He has to because the degree. Generally, we don't sculpt our own degree requirements. They're given to us, right? But here's the beauty. Ain't a thing that's useless. Ain't a thing that's unimportant. Ain't a thing that's insignificant. And I know in the context of education and higher education, to use the phrase ain't a thing is probably not the most appropriate way. But nonetheless, I think it makes my point. Also, I do want to give a simple warning in this point. Among disciples, again, it's not necessarily called them converts, it's not called them believers, it's not called them Christians. Among disciples, there can tragically be deserters. You know that? Now, no one who is in Christ will lose their interest in Christ. None of his sheep will be lost. The good and great shepherd guarantees that. But among those who declare themselves disciples, say that they're learners, well, the reality is by their fruit you will know them. But look what it says. I want to, in John chapter 6, we remember that challenging passage. It says this. That's the passage where Jesus was teaching those complicated thoughts that even much of which is not so acceptable today. He was saying that he is the bread of life. And they were having trouble with that teaching. And then he explained to them a, a, an even challenging, more challenging doctrinal reality that, look, no one can come to the Father unless he is drawn by him. What? Yes, they can. Uh, no, they can't. That's why I told you no one can come unless it is granted to him by the Father. Jesus says that twice, and in, the, in this context, their minds are blown. The metaphor has already messed them up, and now the doctrine has done them in. So, it says this in John 6, 60. When many of his disciples heard it, all right, they were disciples. They are those who said, I will follow, I will learn. What he says, I say yes. But then when he says something they don't like, what do they do? Nah. Yeah, that doesn't work for me. Well, whether that, that works for you or not is not the point. That's how it must be done. This is, this is they say, uh, many disciples when they heard it said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? The, the phrase listen is, who can hear it with acceptance? Who's going to agree to that? Who's going to agree to that little story you just said that seems to negate free will? Who's going to buy that junk? And so they couldn't take it. And then, of course, he in verse 63 and 64 reiterates it, which is beautiful. So you got a problem with this? Let me say it again. <laughs> Wait a second. So you're saying that if people are uncomfortable with it, you don't change it. You restate it 
with greater firmness and clarity? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then it goes on to this. In ver sadly, in verse 64, he goes on to say this. It says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were those that did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So listen, there were some who did not believe, and yet they were spoken of here in some sense as disciples. Means they had declared themselves part of the community. They had made themselves physically pregnant, uh, present. Yeah, it was a mistake. Made themselves physically present. But did that change them? No. And so they did not. Oh, I'm glad you're listening, though. <laughs> uh, they did not actually believe. I mean, that, that, is a, that is a shocking sentence there. And Jesus knew those who didn't believe. And I guarantee you, if you were to interview them, they didn't even know themselves they didn't truly believe yet. <laughs> we're, we're so able to deceive ourselves. It goes on and says this. Um, and, and he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Restates it again. And so what happens now among those disciples? Once Jesus restates it with greater clarity. Oh, now I, you would think now I get it. Well, it's going to take me a while to learn that. But the, the teacher, master is saying it. No, what does it say? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Wow. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Jesus wasn't desperate. He wasn't. He turns to the 12 who are staying there. He's not turning to those running away and saying, please don't leave me. Please don't leave me lonely. He, he's not. He, he's declared truth. And if they are not true disciples... If they want their own truth and they want their own way, they can't have it. He's not here, and we as a church are not here to modify things for men's consumption. Truth is absolute truth, and Jesus declares it, even the hard truth. Now, men would come in today and say, you know what Jesus did there? He lost a bunch of followers. Uh, let's think of what would have been a better way for Jesus to handle this. Come on. Does anyone have any idea what are some better ways Jesus could have been more effective on this day? Can you see that happening? Yeah. But here's the problem with that. This is Jesus. Unlike us, he makes no mistakes. I could potentially, while saying a sentence, use a wrong word. It might happen from time to time. Jesus, no, not at all. And so what a perfect example he is to us. And he turns to them and says, are you going to go too? To whom shall we go? For And I love the way that it's stated there. You have the words of eternal life. You're the teacher. You're the one who has the whole of the truth. And we have believed. I like the way they state it because it shows you the faith that God brings is different than the claim to belief that men state. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. It's not just assent. Yeah, 
I believe, you know. Do you believe me? Do you believe me? Well, it's not just we believe and know. There's no doubt about that. this. It, it is complete faith that absolutely rests on certainty. Now, I got to move on quickly from the issue of di the, the disciples increasing. So the disciples are increasing there, and we see them define students and followers, distinguished, known by their number, and gathered together. Disciples are developed and to be developing their whole lifetime, and among disciples, there are deserters. Second thing in this passage we see is as the disciples are increasing, difficulty is arising. I mean, the popular saying that people say is things like this, more money, more problems. But of course, nobody ever would refuse money as a result of that. For some reason, everyone will agree. Yeah, more money, more problems. Do you want some more money? Yes, please. Hmm. Well, listen more. More people, more problems. <laughs> even if they're disciples, even if they're genuine, where there are people, there will be problems. I mean, I, more people, more problems. It doesn't take a lot of people to make a problem. You know, by the grace of God, we do see where two or three are gathered in his name. He is in the midst of them. But where just two are gathered, you can have yourself a good fight. All it takes. Right? And sometimes, in a sense, you don't even necessarily need two. One by themselves is enough to sit there and grumble within themselves. And mess it up. What I want us to see is that we see these problems. The, the world today is so uh, caught up and the church potentially so caught up in the idea of, of size and numbers uh, to where there are churches now that meet in stadiums. Or at least they are called churches. But listen, the, the increase of numbers does not necessarily increase holiness. Does not necessarily increase unity. It does not necessarily increase joy and happiness. It doesn't necessarily. The answer to everything is not numerical increase. With the numerical increase here, we see that a problem arises. And it tells us this problem, the difficulty arising in this passage. It says this in verse 1. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now listen, if a, an error or mistake is made, uh, it, it's not saying that we somehow have to be blind and oblivious to reality. And that we can't ever address Errors, mistakes, or missteps. That's not what it's saying. That's not what I'm trying to say. The, there came a recognition by the Hellenists. Now, in this context, the Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jews. Many Jews, because of what was called the, di the diaspora, had been spread out all across the region. And many of them had been born and raised, like Paul, in other communities. So that the schools that they went to for education were Greek-speaking as opposed to Aramaic-speaking. 
So their more natural language was the language of the nations and not the language of the children of Israel. And much of their, much of their patterns, their expressions, their, uh, their gestures would have been similar to their other community, more Greek-influenced than Jew. So as a result, though they were having maybe the same historical background in terms of, of, of racial, they were still dividing and making distinction. So, so recognize that. So uh, there are some people today who think if, 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 we just ha if, if everybody in the church is just the same, we won't have these problems. You know what I, someone might have thought, you know what the solution is? Let's have a Hellenistic church and let's have a Hebrew church and let's begin to have all of these different distinctive churches divided based on background, race, culture. Nonsense! That is not the way that it is in Christ Jesus. Indeed, all of those other things fade away. And, and our identity and our unity is in Christ and who He is. Our citizenship is a citizenship in heaven. All of these other things that were of this earth, they bear no abiding significance. So that ultimately, regardless of what happens in people's minds because of, of race and culture, we come to realize this. Wait a second. I have far more in identity with this brother and sister in Christ than I do with these people that come from my same background community. Because Christ becomes that overwhelming. It's, it's, it's a conversion of even our inner culture. To where Christ is our greatest identity and alignment. But it says here of them. They did not simply see a problem and go point it out. Because there will, be, there will be mistakes, there will be errors that can be addressed. But it says, a complaint arose. See, now that doesn't necessarily need to happen. The, the word there, and I'm going to say it for you, the, the Greek word there for um, complaining is an onomatopoeia. It, it's a word that sounds like what it is. It, it's gongusmas. You know, a gongusmas arose among them. The moment you say that, you know it wasn't a good thing. Gongusmas. It sounds messy. It sounds filthy. It sounds undesirable. That's right. It is. It, it was a complaining. It was a grumbling. It was a murmuring. If there's an issue, and there will be issues, deal with it. Speak the truth in love. Go and interact over it. But what began to happen is a murmuring arose. So instead of going to the leaders initially and, and saying, hey, you know, it seems this is going on. I don't know um, what the motives are. I don't know what, but this, this, these widows are being overlooked. But you know how easy it is to go from our widows are being overlooked to saying, you know what? Our widows are being overlooked because they're Hellenistic. I think they've got a problem with us. You know what? I know what's in their heart. I know what they're thinking. Does that ever happen? Oh my goodness, it does. And why are we, you know, God knows what's in people's hearts. I know you're often pretty confident you know what's in their hearts and thoughts too. But at least recognize that you and I can make mistakes in those things. And instead of dealing with they're doing this and they're thinking this and they're not doing this, just deal with the issue. Our widows are being overlooked. Why, I'm not sure, but our widows are being overlooked. Is there any way that someone could attend to that? 
But it, it came to worse than that. It became uh, complaining arose among them, where now this is being stated. Groups are gathering together. Groups are dividing. Though, maybe, maybe you can picture groups over here looking and pointing at them over there. Come on. Why does that need to happen? I'm thankful that in, in that context, uh, as this, the contentions arose, uh, the apostles immediately step in to deal, deal with it. I want you to note this also. The division here that's taking place, it's not one over doctrine. It's not one over teaching. It's not over who, who Christ is and what Christ has done. I mean, those things certainly are, are worthy to divide over. But that's not what was going on in the church here. It was, it was all over the same kind of things that can, that can creep their way into the church today. Ideas that claims of racism and sexism. Schisms related to the isms are just garbage. We just, we just need to say, what are the priorities? Pursue unity. Same mind. Same judgment. And how do we do that? We do it in accordance with the word. And so the, they, they should go to these men who are in charge. And as they go to the men to complain, they speak. And our third thought is uh, we see duty prioritizing. So disciples increasing, difficulties arising, duty prioritizing. See, initially, we already saw a few chapters back. When they would sell their land or whatever, they would come and lay money where? At the apostles' feet. And so early on, these apostles are trying to... Trying to juggle everything. The money's being given to them. The various needs. The various distribution. All these kinds of things. The failure may have been. There's just more than these men can presently handle. Not that anyone's necessarily against anyone else. We don't have to run to worst possible motives. Just human limitations can sometimes be the reality here. And, and so they, they come, and, and as they're aware of this complaint, they call the entire group of people together. They say this in verse 2. It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word to serve tables. They're setting their priorities what is, it, what is more important? And this isn't too different than even kind of what Jesus instructs us. You know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus was famished and they went to get some food when he was in Samaria. And they came back bringing the food, knowing that he was hungry. And he tells them what? I have food to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the will of my Father in heaven. So they, there, is a, there is a greater priority on the spiritual things than on the physical things. And God helped the church to always keep that priority. But listen, there can be people who because of a commitment to that priority, ignore the other. Ignore the love, ignore the care, ignore the need. That's not what they do. They commit themselves to that greater priority and then they make provision to also meet the practical needs. Praise God for that, right? So you, got, you end up having some who are so spiritual that they don't care about the needs of people. Supposedly so spiritual. And then you got those who are so socially minded that they've lost all sight of the scripture and the spirit. Does that happen? Yes, all over the place. Not happening here in the early church. Not only that, verse 4 says this. We will devote ourselves 
to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, I'm just going to say this very, very briefly. Prayer and the ministry of the word. Sometimes people th- think that prayer is a very optional thing. A second. Okay, so what were you doing for the last hour? I was praying. So you weren't doing anything? So you're just, just sitting there? No, I was praying. So you didn't accomplish anything? I was praying. We have this tendency to think because, because when you're done praying, you haven't manufactured anything. You know, there's nothing in your hand to, to see. There's nothing to, there's, look what I did. There's nothing to show that, that, it, that it's kind of nothing. And, and maybe there's also a little bit of danger, uh, and we need to be careful of this. We who, who glory in the sovereignty of God and recognize that He knows our needs before we have them. And, and regardless of my prayer, He's going to wisely work all things after the counsel of His will, fulfilling His perfect purposes. So what's the point? Don't fall into that, because people will accuse you of that. The point is, God is pleased to incline himself to hear the prayers of his people. And we are to be a people who are committed and pleading in prayer. In Colossians 4.12, it says this. uh, Paul speaks of Epaphras. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in prayers. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? He is always struggling on your behalf. Now, that doesn't sound like sweet hour of prayer. Right? That calls me from a world of care. Sometimes the the, the hour of prayer reminds you of that world of care. Reminds you of all of the realities and stresses. But there is a, a, a sweet comfort that comes in it. As you rest confidently on God's purposes. But he struggles on their behalf in prayer. That you may stand mature and fully assured. So he's, Epaphras understands that their spiritual maturity is not exclusively linked to the excellence of teaching and preaching that they receive and their willingness of heart to receive it and grow in it. But, he, but they both understand, the apostle and Epaphras, that a key ingredient in that process of growth are the prayers on their behalf. And someone says, well, I don't understand how that works. I said, that's fine. You may not understand how it works. Know that it does. You know, uh, toddlers may not understand how turning on a light switch makes the light go on. Whether they understand electronically how it happens, doesn't matter. It still comes on. The same thing, we, just because we do, something is beyond us because it's woven into the divine mysteries of His will that is beyond our comprehension doesn't change that we need to understand that. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says himself, he says, And so from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, why is he doing that? Because he considers it essential. 
laboring in prayer, naming names, speaking specifically. Um, he says this, a similar thing to the church in, in Philippians. Further, in 2 Corinthians, he says to that church in chapter 1, verse 11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted through granted us through the prayers of many. You need to help us by your prayers. Wow. Prayers are an actual participation, a real participation in one another's lives. You know? There is a very real sense in which tomorrow I get on an airplane to travel to the other side of the world. And I'll be seeking to serve the Lord there for the better part of February. But you can help me. You can help me daily. And I want to urge you this. Our, our, our thoughts sometimes are, I'm praying for them. But does that really help them? The scripture says there is legitimate, authentic help Wrought in the mercies of God through prayer. Believe it. Act upon it. Pray. Maybe it's because we don't believe it in the depth that, that we should. That we don't struggle at times in prayer for one another. Just kind of throw the prayer up there. God handle it if you want to. We trust you. Sometimes we need to dig in and plead. Philippians 1 19 says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Through your prayers. He's expecting that their prayers actually have an impact on the deliverance that's to take place. Are they changing the mind of God? No. But see, the God who has set forth before the foundation of the earth, all of his wise decrees... When does, when does he come to know my pleadings of this day? Only when I say them? He has known in his perfect and complete wisdom before the foundation of the earth the pleadings that I would plead on your behalf this day. And he has taken those pleadings into his divine counsel in setting forth his decrees. Our prayers don't change his mind, but our prayers are part of his plan. Participate in one another's lives in this way. Even if some degree of mystery remains to it, let's not let that mystery leave us thinking that prayer is something that's, that's passive and ineffectual. That it's, that it's just, just a pretend game. And, and you see those kind of things. Some, some, some people used to say this as we would travel around as a family and be getting ready to head back to India. They're like, you know, we, we don't have a lot of money, so we, we can't really, I uh, would love to be able to help you guys more, but can't really do anything for you. So we'll just pray. That, those two words never go together. Just pray pray so we'll pray yeah I, I can't fix your problem I can't provide your need God can I'm gonna pray I'm gonna go before the one who can get it done I'm gonna pray
there's a sense in which praying, I, li I like to think of this, praying, earnestly praying for someone might be more earnest, practical, beneficial participation than giving them a coin or two. All right. Well, you know what? There is so much more that I wanted to unfold in this passage, but I do not want to... Um, Layoff, so we'll, we'll end up taking up. Then we'll just turn to this, the, the second part of this and we'll end with this today. Um, they, they will devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Again, it's interesting to note this. The word waiting on tables is based on that word diakonos, from which we get deacon, waiting on tables. And here it is, uh, diakonos of the word. So it's all serving. They understand everyone is serving. I want you to also note this. They're not saying, hey, we're done with that stuff. It's beneath us. That's too, that's, that's too, we apostles. That's too low for us. That's not it. That's not it at all because they've already been doing it. They've already been handling the distributions themselves. And now the numbers are becoming too much that they realize they, they can't fulfill their divinely appointed responsibility as the teachers and preachers, the witnesses of Christ, and carry out all these other things. So it is time to now delegate. Not delegate because it is low, but delegate because this is the priority duty that is assigned to us prayer and the ministry of the word so note this by this time it is likely we're speculating here but there are things that play into the timeline in terms of who is the leadership the persecution that will take place of Stephen shortly that lead us to believe with a high likelihood that this is about two years into the church okay so for quite some time they've been doing it so it's again it's not that i'm i'm this big man we're we're the important person you know i wear suits i can't do that kind of stuff no 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 for them they were about even as christ had given them the example as i serve you so you ought to serve one another in the humblest and simplest sort of ways. And so they sought to serve the early church in every practical way possible. But when the, the numbers and demands increased. And they could not effectively do that. They realized this. We've got greater priorities. And the priorities that were laid upon the apostles. Who the apostles and Christ are the foundation of the church. We've got to understand are the absolute unwavering priorities of the church today as well. Prayer. And the ministry of the word. That has to be absolutely central. It, 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 now in that commitment. You know what they do? They now make a plan and provision. That all the practical things would be taken care of. So it's not one or the other. It's one with absolute importance. And with a faithfulness and commitment to that. Let's also attend to these other things. In an organized, a useful, and practical way. So all we've seen today, I had said we'd see six things. And we ended up seeing three of the six. And that was that the disciples are increasing. 
with the disciples are increasing. We, we define disciples as students and followers, learners. We saw that they're a distinguished community, a known numbered group. We saw that disciples are developed and developing. And we saw that among those who have declared discipleship, there are deserters. We also saw that not only disciples are increasing, but with that, difficulties were arising. And those difficulties that were arising could have been addressed and should have been addressed much more simply and graciously and not risen to the level of gongusmas. Not risen to that level of murmuring and complaining and finger pointing because that's basically what was happening now. They do, you know, theirs are not us overlooking and, and imputing motives and reasons why. Well, complaints and murmurs arising, contention over care. But we saw also unfolding in the midst of that, there was a duty prioritizing. And the duty prioritizing of the leaders of the church and really the highest priority of the church is the prayer and the ministry of the word. As we've considered this, the importance of prayer in the role of the apostles, we also expanded that to see the importance of prayer in the role of our participation in the lives of one another. So let us struggle together, struggle on one another's behalf. Let us do so in prayer. Let us know that God is pleased to cause our prayers, that our prayers have good effect. They avail much. And we, we, as we, of course, yield to his divine will plan, but knowing that our prayers and our participation has gloriously been woven in to the unfolding of his eternal will in a way that may still remain mysterious for us, but that the scriptures declare as having effect through your prayers turn out for our deliverance through your prayers have helped us. And so we do this to the glory of God. Let's pray again, God, as we uh, just thank you for your word, just I long for us to be in a place where we would look around and there would be just a vast commitment to discipleship. Lord, and wherever we are earnestly learning and earnestly seeking you, the enemy is going to be hard at work. And it's not too hard to work when our, uh, our own constitution remains flawed and, and weak. And Lord, we can be prone to grumbling and murmuring and complaining and uh, pointing fingers. Lord, help us uh, to not have that spirit and not have that heart. But we pray that in the context of this church and even in the context of our own lives, that we would have uh, for us and for our discipleship and for our ongoing dealing with contentions and issues, that we would be committed to prayer and the word. Lord, let these commitments be unwavering. And you may you be pleased by your spirit uh, to bring us great delight and grace, great discipline in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.